Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today's guest is a super good friend of mine, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is an established economist, and I'm actually someone who got him into Bitcoin. I think it was around 2012. Jeff is also a writer, and on today's episode, we discuss his journey with blockchain from 2010 until now. Beginning with his own skepticism, find out how trading an expensive bow tie at a bar led to Tucker becoming a fervent Bitcoin advocate and Atlanta Bitcoin Embassy CEO. Join us for a conversation about trade policies that have resulted in iPhones being thrown in the garbage, transformation of economies throughout history, and predictions for the future of cryptocurrency. Right after the ads. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. US customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you wanna trade with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I want to thank and give credit to the first ever sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offer. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant, and I really want you guys to check out one of his coolest apps that's free to use. It's a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator that you can check it out before you get involved in mining or if you just want to learn more about whether mining is profitable and how it works. The website is crypto mining dot tools that's crypto mining dot tools you can enter your estimated uptime and get more realistic profit projections it includes really cool features like the impact of the bitcoin block reward having which is actually coming up extremely soon their api allows you to embed profitability calculators and other live data directly into your own website all for free also if you're wondering which miner is the most efficient or has the best chance of breaking even you should try out their interactive hardware comparison chart. So it's a hardware comparison chart. So you can compare all different types of miners for all different coins and tokens, and it's interactive. So you can play around with it. It's by far the best tool if you have any questions about mining or if you wanna learn more about mining, it's the best tool you can check it out. As a mining consultant, Scott helps you make data-backed business decisions. 
He will be involved in the process if you want to buy a miner, if you want to sell a miner, if you have miners and need to get into data centers. I mean, if you follow Scott on Twitter, even if you're not in the mining industry, you learn so much. I follow him. It's super cool. You can check it out on Twitter or Telegram at Offered Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Again, I want to give a special thanks to Scott. You were my first sponsor when the show was just launching. Thank you so much. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I'm very excited to have my guest today, Jeffrey Tucker. It's a name you all know. Um, Jeffrey and I met in 2012 and it was such a great experience because, uh, and I'm going to let him tell the story of how we actually met, but to give you a brief overview of, of Jeff, um, he's current the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's the CEO of the Atlanta Bitcoin Embassy and a managing partner of Vellum Capital, also the chief liberty officer of Liberty.me. He's a distinguished honorary member of Mises Brazil, and I believe a fellow of the Mises Institute economics advisor of freesociety.com and also the policy advisor of the Heartland Institute. On top of that, Jeff has written, I think, eight books or more and has also written 150 introductions to books and thousands and thousands of articles, dozens that I've read on economics, um, crazy crypto stuff, but um, on, on a whole range of topics. It's safe to say, Jeff, you are a economist yes uh yes that's right. but of the austrian school like the the real economics yeah that's right real economics <laughs> that's right. well because I, I you know when i was in I, I don't know if you know this but i i majored in economics in, I'm in not college surprised to hear um, that and, at all you know but it was it was stupid because we i didn't even know the austrian school existed and i talk about censorship i went to a publicly funded state university and the word Austrian, the only time Austrian economics or the word Austria even came up in conversation was if you wanted to study abroad in Vienna. <laughs> but they taught one school of economics and that was it. Well, that's, you know, I've always kind of known that you're really knowledgeable about economics. That's what drew you into the crypto space. In fact, you were really, really early in on it, way before I was actually. And you had this sort of passion and insight for what it could do and was an early um, an early champion and practitioner, you know, of, of crypto. And it was, so you were way ahead of me, but when we met, you were a little bit, uh, I don't know, just still, still interested in the ideological elements of crypto. You weren't quite, you were just getting interested in that. And that was my primary interest. So we, we made a good match. It was like meeting my family for the first time, because up until that point, <laughs> I, you know, I was at that, um, it was at it was at Freedom Fest, right in in New Hampshire, and at the um, in Nashua in 2012, and 
Yeah, I think it was called Liberty, Liberty, Liberty Forum, Forum or something like that. Yeah, Liberty Forum. And it was you and Gabe Sakunik, and I think um, who else was with us? Um, we had a we had a sort yeah. of a gang, and you all kind of and uh, up until that point, me now, I didn't even know like yeah, you I, know what like I was walking into a room of of like people who thought the same things that I did, and that was so you know like mind blowing. <laughs> That's right. Well, we had this late night, and it, and it was just a glorious evening. We had no idea how history was going to unfold, right? Either in your life or mine. At that point, we didn't. I guess we all had a sense that something important was developing and that we were all going to be kind of OGs together, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we were going to basically starting our new lives together and just getting to know each other. I don't think I had met, I think Eric Voorhees was that night or there that night too. Yes. And we were all meeting each other for the first time, but it was, it was a, a lovely evening and wow, how history has unfolded. And here we are talking, you're a free man. I mean, there's like, there's just so many, so much history. It was so much, so many beautiful things have, I mean, and terrible things have happened so, in, in the meantime. But, uh, you know, I think like it, I got to say, I'm, I'm a little emotional talking to you only because, you know, we've been through so much together. That is true. And it all started that night at a yeah. bar when you introduced yeah. me. Isn't it crazy that so many things happen? At bars or things like that, like these crazy places. But um, I remember you introduced me to a Negroni for the first time in my life. I had no idea what that was. I'm glad I could contribute. You did something. <laughs> and you, know, you contributed. Like up until that point, I was drinking Jacks and Cokes, and now I was like, "Wow, there are actually something called a cocktail like that." I was very young. I was like 21 or 22. Yeah. Um, oh, it's just interesting because you were sort of wildly wise beyond your years. You know, even then. And you have, you know, very obviously brilliant. You're very quick, quick on your feet and quick thinker. And the way you sort of absorb information and process it, process it in your brain was obvious to me that night because you were just discovering, you know, the the libertarian implications of this. That's you know, the thing. I was really discovering that. Like I didn't. Yeah. I never put really two and two together up until that event. And I'll never forget, like, you know, you have details of certain things in your, in your like 10, 20 years ago that you just, you remember even what you were wearing that day. And mm -hmm. that was one of those events. Like I remember such spe specific things. And I remember Gabe and I, but mostly Gabe walking up to you uh, and, and I, and getting you to download a Bitcoin wallet. And I could see your mind was blown. I but the question I want to ask you, Jeff is, and I don't know, you know, I feel like up until that point, until you started like tangibly using it, yeah. you may have been a little bit of a Bitcoin skeptic. I want to yeah, know why. Tell me why. Yeah, yeah. Let's just kind of go back in time here just slightly because, you know, I had been very – well, I don't want to say enthusiastic. I've been, I've been curious about this idea of creating some alternative to national monies. And I had followed these attempts since really the mid 1990s. You know, there's. Okay, so you were more jaded. Yeah, there was a Liberty Dollar, then there was Eagle, and there was, I don't know, but, you know, there's all these things that were, people kept trying it. And, and after a while, I began to think so here's what's interesting, Charlie. It's that, um, uh, instead of concluding that these previous attempts were, were, were flawed and, needed to be fixed, I concluded that it just wasn't possible. 
You know, you know, I just, I thought, well, you know, the dollar's money and the internet is a space of infinite reproducibility. So it'll be impossible to ever make a money that's not hackable and that somebody can't duplicate. And you, and so therefore a crucial consideration of money that namely that it has to have, uh, an unhackable scarcity about it uh, was not achievable in the digital realm, so I wrote it off. So in t- in um, September of 2010, I started getting messages from people about Bitcoin that it was this great thing, and you can imagine, like, you know, the name Bitcoin itself just seemed to me kind of slightly goofy, and <laughs> and um, and I read the white paper, you know, very quickly. It just seemed like gibberish to me, and you know, just another silly attempt. So I think in 2011 was my first writings on the topic. It's just a short blog post. And I, and I just said, nah, this stuff's not going anywhere. Actually, I should have realized at the time, I think, I think even when I wrote that it, it had uh, passed a value of $1, maybe it was even as high as 10. And then it went through some upheaval, you know, and I was kind of disdainfully just making fun of it, which I'm just so embarrassed about now. But then I started getting more interested in it throughout well i got this message in 2010 i wrote the guy recently he was a graduate student at mit at the time i wrote him back and i asked him what he was doing with his life and we kind of reminisced about this um and you know uh two i started getting interested more interested in i guess early it would no you know would have been mid 2011 i began to think you know because i was running editorial policy for the Mises institute at the time and I thought, you know, we should actually um, weigh in on this publicly because we can't just let this stuff go on without actually talking about it. And so I had several submissions. But, you know, the thing about being an editor is that it's really difficult for a, an editor to run something that he doesn't or she doesn't understand. Like, that's why editors have to be smart people. And um, so I wasn't really competent to judge the quality of these submissions. And so I would throw it over to others, but unfortunately, in that case, I threw it over to um, some old, old world, old timey um, monetary economists who quickly wrote back to me, "Look, this is completely a hoax. It's a fraud. It's ridiculous." And stop being and uh, enticed by this nonsense. <laughs> you know, this this proves to me that you're just not capable uh, or competent enough to judge anything. The fact that you wow. even give this a time of day, yeah, no, it was a real shaming. You know, took place. So I thought, oh, wow, I really suck. I'm no good. Wow. But I still couldn't get out of my head that this thing seemed to be weirdly robust. And so that was mid-2011. Um, 2012, I, I started getting more and more interested in it, but not enough to focus and not enough to really learn about it. So by the time you guys kind of surrounded me, and it was so funny because I had had a lot of people say to me, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. But, you know, it was like a lot of people said in the early days, eagle, eagle, eagle. So I couldn't really tell the difference between these things, right? Can you tell me what that was like, you know, the eagle days? Like, how did that come about? And do you have any parallels for like, because I'm curious, yeah. you know, like. Well, so the problem with what are the parallels? Eagle, eagle was not a bad idea, but the problem was that, and, and it just, it flopped, right? I mean, like, eagle was kind of. Well, centrally controlled. Yeah, it was cooking along and, and then sure enough. Uh, somebody d- duplicated the thing and created a bunch of spam emails and and said, "Oh, we're the real eagle." And there's a big lawsuit, and there was, you know, and the whole thing just kind of collapsed because because somebody else duplicated it. And to me, that was proof. I was like, "Aha! See, can't work, can't work." Um, 
and so Bitcoin seemed a lot like Eagle to me. And I thought, well, that's not going to last long. What I didn't understand is that Bitcoin had overcome the very problem that actually had doomed Eagle, which was, yeah, a central point of failure, right? And, um, and so I didn't really... I didn't really understand why Eagle had failed. I thought it was just, well, you can't make money for the internet. You know, that was <laughs> that was what I thought. And so I wasn't really prepared to, um, I didn't really have that much of an open mind. I was kind of getting more and more curious about it. But when you guys surrounded me and I was <clears throat> moseying around at the conference at lunch and I got suddenly surrounded by this gang of book, Bitcoiners, none of, you know, and I didn't know any of you. And you're like, you had me surrounded on all sides. You're like, it's time for us to go to lunch. And I really, honestly, Charlie, did not want to do it because I thought, oh, God, I got better things to, you know, be, you know, suffer through a, a, a harangue about the glories of Bitcoin. But I thought, well, you know, might as well. And the funny thing for me was that I think it was Gabe, or maybe it was um, Eric, somebody, somebody just demanded that I, look, just download the wallet. I was like, okay, 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 now show me your QR code. And I showed the kid. Okay, here's a Bitcoin. Actually, it was like, I think I got I remember. two or three. Yeah. And two or three. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. What does it even matter? One, two, three. Uh, <laughs> back in those probably, days. How, many, how much Bitcoin is lost because of like stuff? I like know, right? And I think at the time it was $14 each. And I, I sold a, a bow tie off my neck, which I, I think I paid $45 for. So that's why. Oh, I want to talk to you about bow ties later, but I'm going to write it down for later. So that's why I, that's why I actually um, uh, demanded three, because I wanted to be compensated for my – what a jerk, right? But anyway, uh, <laughs> here you guys are doing this nice thing for me, and I just thought, of, thought it was just this tedious thing. But, but Charlie, I'm a little bit not as smart as you. So when um, – yeah. Right. So, uh, so like, what happened to me is that when I, within a few seconds, felt my phone buzz. I think I think I downloaded at that time the blockchain.info wallet, and it had you know part of the application that it would notify you if yeah. there were changes in in, uh, in 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 asset allocation on the blockchain that pertained to your private key. So my phone buzz went, but I had a sense that something had arrived. And that shocked me. I was like, so this is actually a thing. Like, wait, so now I own something? And what is the thing? And it really excited me. I was like, hmm, this is really interesting. So I went out into the, uh, the, the, where there were the various people were displaying their wares, you know, for the conference. And there are a lot of things on sale for Bitcoin. They even had an early version of a Bitcoin ATM. So I started buying more. And then spending it, buying and buying and spending, you know, and it was really fun. And that's that that conference. And it took me like about forty eight hours to fully process. I could hardly sleep, to tell you the truth, because from my point of view, <laughs> I mean, if it's possible to make a private money that's actually a global currency that's secure and actually works to achieve uh, what what happened to me. And you have to remember back in those days too. ECH was pretty much, and PayPal were pretty much the only ways that you could actually. Yes, there weren't. There wasn't even Venmo or anything like no, there that. There wasn't Venmo. There wasn't any. And now banks are innovating in the P two P realm. So yeah, everything was clunky, and especially international remittances. I mean, the idea that I could get you know money sent to me from Beijing or Sao Paulo just as quickly as uh, Gabe Sakunik sent it to me over that lunch table was. Absolutely mind-blowing. So at the time, then I was working for Laissez-Faire Books, and I went back, and I wrote up a big article. I was like, you know, hey, 
basically my first article on, on Bitcoin, I guess I came out in something like March of 2013. I said, hey, this is a real thing. God, this was so early on, though, still. Yeah. And I didn't entirely understand it, although I, I, I have to look up that article. I don't think I got anything necessarily wrong, but mainly my article was just enthusiastic. Like, I didn't understand how it worked. You were just I, excited. I was just excited. So, wow. And Charlie, that was the moment when my life changed. So I want to ask you, I want to ask yeah. you a question. And that, so that was the moment that your life changed. And, and I want to go from there to what you did. But there was something that you wrote. You just said, and because you're an editor, you know, every word you say means a lot. And I know you're saying it for a purpose, right? Um, and I quickly wrote down a quote that you said. Um, and I'm going to preface it with a tweet that I, I, I put out um, a month ago. And I said, you never actually own your own Bitcoin. You never actually own Bitcoin. And it's very important about ownership, right? And you said there was a, a notification regarding the asset allocation on the blockchain relating to your private key. Right. And that's a very good way of saying it. In fact, I wrote that down and I'm going to save it because what people don't realize is that when you have, when you open up a wallet or you have a paper wallet or a hardware wallet or you know anything where you're custodializing your own Bitcoin, mm -hmm. uh, which is what you should be doing, um, or your own any crypto asset, you have you have a private key, and what that private key is literally a key. It gives you the right to move, or not not even to move. It gives you the right to um, uh, change outputs on. You know, or or move outputs from from one. I'm not even gonna say account from one private key to another private key on on this thing called the blockchain. That's right. And so the question I ask you is: Is that ownership? Because the word ownership has a lot of legal and liberty oriented ramifications. I, I think I think it's yeah, you're right. I think that's a difficult term to use. And really, what we're talking about is the technology for documenting uh, documenting the right of control. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and, and by the way, such technologies have existed basically dating back to, you know, 150,000 years. I mean, you can go back and see that people re were recording, you know, your right to control something on, on clay tablets. Is that ownership though? Um, well, like you say, the, I don't mind the word ownership, but th that's also a kind of a complicated thing. Sometimes I think ownership and is better just described as the, uh, the exclusive right of controlling something um, to do something with it. Um, if you want to call that ownership, I, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a, it's a decent metaphor, but the, the main thing is that this, this ledger technology is, is, you, you know, with a private key. Now you have this, this access. And so you're able to change around um, uh, you, you're able to acquire uh, the ability to control um, some portion of this uh, math, or, or or relinquish that control. So, and that's and that's about that's really I think technically what we're talking about. But Interesting. The other the other thing that's a little bit odd for people is that uh, Bitcoin is just math. You know, it's not really a thing. You know, we try to represent it physically because our sort of lizard brains can't think of anything else. But it actually is not um, a physical thing. I mean, of course, you can print it out or whatever, but it's still a code. I mean, it's, it's really is just an asset allocation on a on a distributed ledger. That's that's it. And that's that's the best thing. Yeah, that's what you want. And and tied to your tied to your ability to to manage it essentially. Um, 
but what's also there, there's a lot of things. The, the other problem with the word ownership here is that, and even the word right is a little bit complicated because sure. actually um, we think of rights as being enforceable, but, um, but your ability to control this, this allocation on the blockchain is not, um, I would say, uh, enforceable. Um, uh, on a n- normal basis. And, and it's a little alarming to realize this, actually, because I remember it was a couple of years ago, I was, um, no, it was just last year, maybe, I was I was giving out some little t- tiny micropayments in Bitcoin to a crowd of people one by one, and also trying to carry on conversations at the same time. And I had, I guess, $2 listed in my phone, and I was going to send it to somebody right before I click send. I had something went off in my brain that I was like, I wonder if I'm doing something wrong. And I happened to look down at my phone, and sure enough, I had put um, three zeros accidentally. No. Oh. <laughs> so I was about to move two thousand dollars, and I and I and I pushed. You know, instead of swiping right, I swiped left, and I just I felt this this rush of of terror that went through me. Yeah, there's this, there's a scary factor. Yeah. How many of us have almost done that? And here's the thing: there's no chargebacks, right? Since it's really a peer-to-peer change in allocations um, that's finally settled uh, as soon as it's confirmed. So I would have, the only way I would have been able to get my money back is just, just to say to the person, listen, you and I don't really know each other that well, but it would be really, really sweet of you <laughs> if you would undertake the following operation on your phone. <laughs> hey, so you, you, that, that reminds me of something interesting because like, so go back to 2013 and, and, you know, I'm like you said, I'm like all I'm crazy evangelizing and I'm going up to everyone and I'm, you know, publicly uh, challenging, uh, um, you know, Paul Krugman to, to debates about Bitcoin yeah. and economics. And, you know, I'm like just being completely abrasive about it. And I had an answer to everything. Anything you could say negative about Bitcoin, I had an answer. And I remember walking into like a VC fund and yeah, you could be your own bank and all this stuff and take control of your money and your finances and your freedom. You know what he said to me? And I had no response to at the time. He said, Charlie, I don't want to be my own bank. That's a scary thought. Yeah. I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to. to- so, that is a, so that is a fascinating thing. Um, I, I probably like you in the early days assumed that maybe one of the great, the great merit, there's many merits to, to Bitcoin, but, the, but one of the great things was this unmediated peer-to-peer uh, transactions that we were going to get rid of financial intermediaries. And I wrote countless articles about this topic. And, you know, how about the intermediaries increasing counterparty risk and the, the, and the problem of fraud and how often people got their credit cards stolen and, you know, there's permission layer with mediators, you know, with these mediation layers and how you can get cut off from your funds and how your bank can just send you a letter saying, you know, goodbye, we hate your guts and so on. And so, so all these problems would, would end. I've gotten those letters, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so it's very frustrating. But so one of the things that that has happened in the Bitcoin space that I never expected was the uh, the rise of uh, Bitcoin inter- intermediaries, that basically Bitcoin banks, and they I think are overwhelmingly dominant in terms of current uh, uh, adoption, and that's something I just really never expected. In other words, I think your friend was speaking for a multitude of people. People don't want to own their own bank. They just don't. 
Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, which is a disappointment to me. But, you know, Charlie, we have to defer to the market. We don't know how things are going to flesh themselves out. And that's just been one of the developments that's happened since, since you and I met that I didn't expect. Are markets efficient when we allow them to be? Yeah, I would say I would say so. I mean, the the problem is we can't really outthink them. We, you and I, can have our wishes, you know, and dreams, and but ultimately the market's going to prevail. I mean, we're, neither of us are in charge of it, which is one of the things that's that's good and bad. It's 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 bad because you know I don't think these Bitcoin banks are really the way people ought to be using Bitcoin. But things will resolve itself, and the market will learn from its own mistakes. Yeah, you know, like, given the whole ICO world, it's like learning from its mistakes. Yeah, you know, that's right. So yeah, and so we have to be tolerant of so-called failure, because otherwise we we don't have uh, learning taking place. And so it could be that in the future, people will, you know, user interfaces will become um, a little uh, less complicated. You know, we don't know what's going to happen, but eventually. Um, you know the 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 time of 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 the absence of intermediation and and payments could uh, could eventually unfold, but I just didn't expect this in between stage. Etoro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at etoro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I'd like to thank my sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offord. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant and provides managed miner hosting services in Texas. If you need to get at least 25 megawatts of miners online in the next three months, Scott wants to talk with you right now. Contact him on Telegram or Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. He's offering an all-in rate of 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour. Wow, that's like... Super cheap. That's like electricity cost in the Arctic where things are automatically cooled because it's so cold. So he's offering 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour without any capex required. Or if you commit to $170,000 per megawatt up front, he can get you a rate of 5 cents per kilowatt. Am I reading that right? 5 cents per kilowatt? That's unbelievable. Scott can get your first 25 megawatt hashing within 16 weeks from the date of signing. All the infrastructure, power lines, substations, water lines, and buildings are fully owned by the hosting company. By the end of March 2020, they will already have 150 megawatts online in Texas. This is such a super cool ad to record because my listeners are learning about mining now. Like this is this is really interesting. I, I didn't even know half this stuff before I met Scott and he started sponsoring the show. So make sure you check out Scott on Telegram and Twitter at OFFORD. S-C-O-T-T. And Scott, thank you again for being my first ever Untold Story sponsor. You know, we think like in like 10, like steps of 10, right? So you go, this is what's going to happen. Then the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But there's all this other stuff that happens in between that includes a lot of failures and includes people, you know, losing money. It it includes um, uh, bad, the you know, us looking bad in the in. in in the press and the rest of the world. Yeah. But I always like in the back of my head, I sleep at night knowing that, you know, this is what needs to happen because if we allow for the alternative, you know, the market will resolve itself sure. um, and, and it'll resolve itself in the best way possible. But 
the second part of that quote is if we allow it to. And so humans, we want instant gratification. We want the market to resolve itself now and today. But these things take time. And so because we want instant gratification, we allow governments and we allow major corporations to manipulate and to say to us, we know what's best. So let us pretend we are more efficient than the market. It's it's a very uh, tricky problem. I'll tell you something else I didn't expect is that and I don't think this has been widely recognized that the existence of Bitcoin was it was a complete shock to the payments industry and to monetary economists and finance in general. <clears throat> and after they got over the shock, they started to learn from it. So, like ten years ago, there was there was there was no possibility for for peer to peer payments in national monies. Uh, but all these technologies are being innovated um, every day. I mean, it's because there's a demand for yeah. it now because of Bitcoin. That's right. And so Bitcoin created this whole world that's out there. And banks themselves have figured out how to do peer-to-peer payments. And that wasn't true 10 years ago. And I don't know if you're following this, but there's a gigantic battle right now between the Federal Reserve and the large banks over this peer-to-peer payment technology that even though- Wait, so which one? The Fed now one? Yeah. The one that the- The Fed is battling major banks in a huge struggle over this over these technologies. What the Fed is trying to do is is come up with its own peer-to-peer payment system, which they claim is going to be- Yes, I heard about yeah, that. Yeah, it's going to be deliverable in 2024, I think. It's like because, of course, it takes another yeah, five years. It's but like okay. the most ridiculous bureaucracy. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's an operational technology right now for- So the Fed is trying to basically shove these guys out of the uh, uh, equation and whether they use um, they're going to use all the weight of the Federal Reserve to do it. I mean, it's actually really, really wicked. But that's a that's a different struggle on a different level. I mean, it's 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 and I think in this case, you and I should actually cheer for the banks over the Fed because they're already kind of coming up with these peer to peer payments. And the truth is. And since we both know this, that Bitcoin didn't really become this uh, widely adopted alternative to the dollar in the same way maybe you and I expected it to in 2013, there is going to be this intermediate, this this in between stage where banks themselves come up with peer to peer payment systems, and and uh, the role of Bitcoin in that is is going to be different probably from what we expected. But I think we just have to like it's exciting, right? Right to watch this technology unfold. Um, I think about other episodes in history, you know, whether it's the steam engine. You know, with steam engine, when it came up with steam engine, everything was made out of steam. Oh, here's my steam car. Here's my steam boat. My steam, really? yeah, steam train. Everything. Everything was steam. It's like everybody's, oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, steam is great. And then, but then now nothing is really using steam, only something. No, that's right. And right. And so then internal combustion came about, you know, with fossil fuels and everything, and steam just went away. And I don't. Steam is cool. Though. Yeah. Oh, it's very cool. Right. But nobody, you know, but it, nobody, I think, in the early years of steam expected that it was going to be a, a short term technology. It just went away. So what you're saying is that. Bitcoin has ushered, you know, fast track the yeah. the need for this peer to peer payment system or faster payments in mm-hmm. general because America lagged behind Europe. Europe, Europe has had it for oh, years. I know it, right? Um, like, and you've been to China, right? Okay. Yeah, and so you in the chat apps, you yeah. can you can move money. I mean, like, but so so yes, you'll see a national, and I think Fed now, whatever they're calling it, will probably prevail. 
And these the problem is that these banks will have to very quickly band together and launch their own and it really reach a critical mass. But I don't really see that happening because banks want to basically compete with each other. Um, but the Fed now system will be like a service that'll it'll cost money. If you think it's going to be free or cheap, it's no. It's first of all, wire transfers cost like fifteen dollars, and within all banks, they're basically like in almost instant. But it's expensive and and it's only like certain banks or whatever, and it still takes like basically an hour. Um, and you have to make you know move large amounts of money. But um, Fed now won't work internationally, so you're going to see. The glo- and it, with the trade wars that are happening now, and what we're in with China is basically a cold war. Yeah. Like, let's oh, be it's honest. bad. I mean, right. I, 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 was, I was reading about like it's it's overwhelming federal policy. This whole anti-China thing. I mean, like this is one of the reasons uh, Trump wants to buy Greenland, for example. I want to talk about that after, but really quickly. But before we talk about Greenland, um, the question the question I had was. Or the statement I was going to make, and I want to know if you agree or disagree, was that I think what we'll see is over the next few years, I think we'll see global infrastructure for payments and trade breakdown. And I don't want it to, but I think this like the past 10 years, and I and I don't know who to give credit to, whether it was like Obama or whatever, but there was a very like push for globalization. And this was before like a lot of the immigration yeah, issues yeah. that you see and people are like all nationalistic, yeah. which, which I don't like. But um, before that... It was this big push for globalization, and that's when I was kind of getting into the economy myself. That's when I was getting – and it was great to know that I could do business with without hindrance with China, with Russia, with South America, with anyone. And that was great for a while, but now I see those barriers breaking down and things like Brexit and all that stuff. And and I I really don't want to see that That was tragic. Uh, Just like – that's very insightful – um, and just remember that China only only joined the WTO in 2004, I think. So in a way, the experiment in globalization lasted 15 years, and, and I agree with you, it's now collapsing. But actually, it's this really significant change because after World War II, um, 1948 with the, with the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, um, that was a huge like hinge of history moment because – uh, we reversed like, this long pattern dating back, I don't know, 500 years or whatever, towards um, uh, tariffs and, and, and national management of economic systems and barriers between trade. After 1948, a whole generation of people, uh, Cordell Hull, especially at the U.S. State Department. Can you imagine, like, like good guys at the State Department? I mean, it's, like, almost hard to imagine. But there were. There were, like, a cell of about six guys at the State Department that really believed in free trade. Why? Because they thought it was going to make us prosperous, and they thought it was going to bring us peace. So they really worked on this. Um, they, wanted, they had planned to do this, by the way, uh, in the 20s, you know, after World War I, because they were convinced the breakdown of trade led to a war, this horrible, ghastly war of World War I. So, but then the Great Depression happened, and sure enough, all the protectionists won again. We got the 1930, you know, tariffs, Smoot-Hawley tariffs. By 1934, the move was on to kind of free up trade, but then, then World War II started. So after World War II, these guys were like, nope, got to have free trade, got to have free trade. And... Um, because they grew up in the, the, the war-ravaged yeah. world, they, and so yeah. they saw... Two wars, right? And depression, they're like, God, you know, the best way we can protect humanity from the ravages of war and and depression is through 
free trade. And, and in pushing this, they had to overcome, of all people, John Maynard Keynes, who at the time was like arguing for, for nationalism. He was a, a, a kind of a fascist. Really? Yeah. He was, he was terrible on this issue. I mean, he didn't believe in free trade at all. So he, so he lost that battle. So that battle of 1948 was glorious, and and the churn of terror started to go down, started to go down, started to go down, and the world began to get more and more prosperous and more and more globalized. It was beautiful, and by uh, by the mid 1990s, uh, the proportion of global GDP that was attributable to imports and exports exceeded 50% and then got all the way up to 60% and people are still getting more and more prosperous, more and more prosperous. So why was the the recovery after World War II so much quicker for countries like France, Germany, who are powerhouses economically today, different from the recovery post-World War I, which was so bad it led to World War II? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of it had to do with the Treaty of Versailles, which introduced you know massive amounts of confusion. People didn't know what the borders of the new states were going to be. There were huge debts piled up, and and uh, the victors that were, were demanding vast payments from Germany, sowing all sorts of seeds of uh, resentment, and it was a tremendously unstable situation. We had a few good years there. Uh, where things seemed like they could be get on track, but then, <clears throat> but then of course, when the stock market uh, crash happened, the whole world panicked all over again. You know, and it's like, and so 1930 happened with the Smoot Hawley tariff, which was really high, but didn't happen. What's that? Um, well, it was a U.S. Congress said, <laughs> U.S. Congress said, "Oh no, there's a Great Depression. What should we do? Oh, let's introduce huge taxes on Americans if they buy foreign products." <laughs> Great idea. Great idea. Yeah. And so it was, it just massively deepened the depression. It was awful experiment and, and the years went by. Uh, FDR, of all people, began to reverse that policy with a new free trade agreement between the U.S. and Canada in 1934 and gradually started pushing. But then, then, then the whole world was distracted by World War II. So this whole generation was like, you know what? Once this war ends, and, they, and these guys were working from 19, early 1940s, uh, in the middle of the war to make sure that they had the intellectual and political infrastructure to bring about free trade. So they were absolutely determined to accept no compromise. So GATT came about and then gradually involved more and more countries and more and more peace. And then finally, and you know what's great about that, Charlie? So I've been thinking a lot about these years because I, um, I, I'm just captivated by this. But what happened was uh, the U.S. and and Europe and all the countries of the GATT were becoming so prosperous and so much innovation was taking place, you know, with, with televisions and mass consumer goods and housing got better and we began to trade raw materials for across the, you know, and, and everything was getting better and better and better. And the countries that were not part of GATT, namely, um, you know, the Soviet Union and uh, Eastern Bloc, you know, all, all the socialist countries that were had been bragging for decades that they were going to beat um, capitalism with their with their w- weird zany system, um, it became very obvious that they flopped, and that was because of free trade. So that's ultimately what won uh, the Cold War. People think it was the arms race; it wasn't. It was free trade that won the Cold War because at some point it was like, wait, why is the why is the West so ridiculously prosperous? And then China eventually came around after at the end of uh, the Cold War. China, you know, China had already begun its reforms in the in the. Uh, mid-1980s, but then it just went full steam on, and then by, by 2004, China was part of the, the WTO. And I thought 
like a lot of uh, naive people, that we had finally reached a global equilibrium. You know, it's like, okay, now we understand trade's a good thing. It's world monetary. We're going to have a, a world system of trade. And I thought Bitcoin was going to lead to this uh, world digital money. And then, then just out of nowhere, it's just the most incredible thing. Like, it was just blindsided me. Um, the protectionist movement came to the U.S. And now... Yeah, now there's a new Cold War, and it doesn't seem like there's any reversing it. Trump's determined to have massive tariffs. I mean, what he did with Huawei was an absolute shock. You can't have the world's most progressive, advanced, awesome tech company of the scale and size and reach of Huawei and suddenly say, nah, we're not going to do business with you, and you can't do business with us. This is hugely significant. It was a muscle flexing, though, wasn't it? Of the worst sort, yeah. It was just outrageous and coercive, and they actually arrested uh, the CFO of Huawei Canada. What are you doing? So this has been enormously sad. I'm sad about it because I think the U.S. should be a country that celebrates China's prosperity. And like all these guys in China that are leading this 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 new enterprising prosperity that they've got there admire America. They love American entrepreneurs. And even the founder of Huawei wrote a book about it, you know, was, was inspired by it. I feel like slowly China was warming up to the idea of you have to look at things on a relative scale. Like and I, and I don't know the answers, but if you look at like human rights issues in China and and moving towards capitalism and moving towards freedom. And I don't know the answer, but I feel like if you look at a chart of what it what what it was like with those three metrics 10, 20 years ago versus what it what it is like now. I feel like it's getting better. Am I wrong about that? No, you're right. I mean, the, 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 everything was gradually liberalizing. I mean, like, it, I'll tell you a quick story. I was interviewed one time on China television about the Chinese equivalent of enterprise zones, which is like taking a whole area of, of, uh, of the country and opening it up to foreign investment and even casinos. And, um, and that concept was unfathomable even 15 years ago. Unbelievable. So I got I get on television. They said, "Okay, you're going to speak in a little bit, but first, you know, because it's China, we have to have this Communist Party official on." Oh, I want to hear about this. And I was like, "Oh, brother, okay, go ahead." So the guy gets on on television and says, "Well, we need this enterprise zone because we've discovered that communism with Chinese characteristics means you can't have regulations uh, that in, inhibit enterprise. We need people to uh, have the freedom to make contracts and innovate as they see fit without dictation from above. And it needs to be absolutely open to foreign investment of any any sort. And that was coming from China. Yeah, yeah. So this Communist Party official is saying this. He goes, and so, so this is what communism with Chinese characteristics looks like. It means that the market, supply and demand, profits, secure ownership and contract rights, and openness of trade is the way forward. And so I'm just stunned. Was, I'm he, a- <laughs> was he quoting Mises or something? Or? <laughs> I'm like What I just said to you is like basically what he said. So they said, uh, Jeffrey, how would you respond to that? And I said, I wouldn't. So my feeling is that what this communist said is exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's insane! But now not anymore. Like, okay, so I bet you if that same thing happened today, what would that, you know, what would that official you know, say? There's so much resentment right now in China towards the U.S. because they feel betrayed. Um, and you know, there's a, like the, the, it's like a patriotic uh, thing to do in China to get rid of your iPhone. And iPhone sales in China really collapsed. Yeah, they're completely collapsed. Everybody wants to buy Huawei now, 
so uh, this has all happened. So in it like, had like the Barbra Streisand effect, basically. Yeah. So this has all happened in like 18 months. You know, uh, uh, iPhone was the phone to have as a way of kind of showing uh, in China that you're progressive and that you love capitalism. So they love their iPhones. And then all this happened with Trump. And now nobody wants an iPhone. Everybody's rallying around Huawei. And there's a lot of resentment, a lot of sense of uh, sadness and, and confusion. Uh, not only on the part of the uh, Chinese trade negotiators, but on the part of the average Chinese person. You know, they still love Americans, but but um, the U.S. has they they feel like they've been stabbed in the back. Really, it's really tragic. Switching gears, uh, Andrew Yang, um, Universal Basic Income or his Freedom Dividend. Mm-hmm. I've read about how he thinks he will pay for it. It seems like a lot of his stances are. A lot of his, you know, what he wants to do is is libertarian. It's probably the closest thing we've had to a, a decent libertarian uh, candidate. Um, do you think? Do you think that's feasible? His his freedom dividend and and what is what is you know your world think of him? Uh, well, precisely what I just said. Everybody's sympathetic with it, with the idea and appreciates his uh, thinking here. The the problem with the proposal is that the easy part is starting a new program. Uh, to give people money, the hard part is giving getting rid of the existing apparatus that would that the new program is designed to replace, and that is not likely to, to happen. I mean, you just try try to get rid of even one of these programs, food stamps, whatever you're going to. Well, run. we we spend like almost half a trillion dollars a year on that. So just simply, you know, the freedom dividend is supposed to pay, you know, costs like one point two trillion dollars or something. Yeah. So I mean, just replacing that yeah. with this already is half of it's paid for, and then he wants to do. A ten percent VAT tax, which I'm actually a fan of the VAT tax. I think it's worked well in Europe. Um, I mean, I'm a fan fan of no taxes, but you know, if you're lowering corporate income taxes and personal income taxes, and you're introducing a a consumption tax, I mean, doesn't that fit into the to the libertarian world a lot? Well, it, it would in a in a perfect system in which you could actually got an a, a, a an existing regime and replace it with something that you've created on paper. The problem is that politics is a lot messier than that. And my fear of all these kind of proposals is that you're going to get, you know, a new program for redistribution, a new tax, and nothing's going to happen to the existing programs. And that would be on net bad. And, and I, th- I think that, um, and there's in a sense that re- he rhetorically jumped this, the shark in the last debate where he would said, vote for me, I'll give you a thousand dollars, you know, a month. <laughs> and and that kind of rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So, in other words, I, I think the idea is interesting to consider in a kind of a, 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 a on paper, but I think in reality, it's just going to run into all the usual political problems you're going to have. Really? So, yeah, I just don't see how it's even going to happen. Like, let's just take one program. Let's because the whole proposal is contingent upon displacing the existing system. So, part of the existing system is food stamps. And um, uh, and welfare and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a million of them, but like one of them is just food stamps. Well, food stamps, people think it's a program for the poor. Actually, it's a, a massive agricultural subsidy. The entire program is, administ- is, is administrated by the Department of Agriculture. It's a subsidy to food producers. That's what it is. It's not really about the poor. It's about guaranteeing a market for overly subsidized agricultural products that otherwise people wouldn't even – buy. So like, how are you going to get rid of that? 
you know, I would love to get rid of it, but I don't know how you're going to get rid of it. You're going to bump into the entire agriculture industry and also the, the, you know, every grocery store in America, you know, they all benefit from it too. Everybody seems to benefit, you know, from the existing system in some sort of pillaging, nasty way. And it's just hard to imagine that any of this stuff is going to go anywhere. And, and, and I think that the universal basic income its viability is contingent upon displacing the existing system that actually there's so many interest groups that are interested in. There's a whole industry behind it. Yeah. There's a whole industry behind it and they're super happy with their lives. Uh, There's no grocery store in America that would uh, like every, everybody would just absolutely go into total freak out meltdown mode. If anybody, (laughs) even though it's just this disgusting industrial subsidy, People don't think of it that way, but that's all it is. But industry loves being subsidized. They love living off the taxpayer. It's easier. Yeah. So buying Greenland, um, that's a new thing that's been talked about. And I found out um, that it's actually not the first time that the U.S. is trying to buy Greenland. After doing a little more research, it actually would be very beneficial, um, you know, strategically, but also um, with all the minerals and and everything that's, that's underground. Do you think it's a good idea, and do you think it's actually feasible? I, I, um, I think it is feasible. I don't think it's a good idea. What's interesting to me is the, is the motivation here. Par- partially, there's this Chinese issue. I mean, uh, China's tried to put them airports, you know, on Greenland, and they got uh, the U.S. muscled uh, really? Denmark into saying, you know, into turning it down. Yeah. So there's a, there's a history here. So this is yet another anti-China move. But there's something else here, Charlie, that's important. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't put the connection together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, there's something else that's, that's important here. Uh, so so t- Trump really believes in this idea of national productivity. He wants to be um, self-sufficient as a nation and not dependent on any other nation with trade, which is the craziest idea in 2019, but there you go. Um, but if you're going to do that, that's going to require that you acquire more territory because you, you want to be as big as possible if you believe in productivity and and production and economic life in general should be contained within the nation state. You have to make the nation state as 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 big as possible, and so that's why he's looking around for other territories. I mean, I think he would be thrilled to bring Greenland in as a fifty first state. Um, you know, in in uh, the interwar period, this is called the policy of Liebentrop. I mean, the idea is that we don't want to be dependent on any other nation. We want to maximize productivity within the nation. So therefore, we have to acquire more territories. I would say this about Trump's proposal for Greenland. Way better to buy a country than invade it. <laughs> so, you know. It's true. Um, <clears throat> the U.S. became the owner of Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, but at the cost of millions of lives. So... Throwing around some cash, if you're gonna if you're gonna acquire a country, throwing around some cash is a much more peaceful way of going about it. Well, so at least that's you know better to buy than through markets and invade. <laughs> no one wants to see war, but I guess my fear with like all these things that we've been talking about, their economic, you know, the economic lack of globalization, yeah. nationalism, populism, yeah. um, the reintroduction of fascism around the world. Yes. Do you think we're leading toward like to some some sort of like military something or another? Well, something is happening, Charlie, and it's it's hard for me to even think about this because I'm just constitutionally very sort of optimistic, and and I think you and I came out of a, a, a heady period, you know. Now you think about it, in, in the early 2010s of seeing globalization and decentralization as a kind of the next 
stage of history. And I don't know, I've been absolutely shocked and I've been writing about it since 2015, really. Uh, the rise of nationalism and fascism and strong men around the world and, and, and racism as a, a policy and all these weird things are coming back and nobody really expected. I wrote a whole book about the topic. Um, you know, What's the name of it? It's called Right Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. And, Sounds like a great book. Yeah, and that came out, I guess, two years ago, and it's been translated into Spanish and Portuguese. It's a big deal. I hated writing that book because it was so depressing. I mean, I had to it, march- it sounds like it'll be very depressing. Oh, it's terrible. I had to march through the history of eugenics and and um, nationalism and you know the rise of great men theory and the revolt against liberalism in the early part of the nineteenth century and how it turned into this wicked policies of forced sterilization and ultimately, I'm sorry to say, the Holocaust. So, you know, it was a really hard book for me to write. I didn't like it. I was just trying to alert people to the fact that this threat does exist. I didn't expect it, even I didn't expect it to get as bad as it's, as it's gotten. And my worry is that it's going to get worse. I mean, I hope, my hope, hope, hope is that we're going to rediscover liberalism sooner rather than later. Liberalism by which I mean a policy of liberality, right? Free migration, free trade, um, uh, private property and ownership, freedom of contract, innovation, and human rights and human dignity for all. That's what I mean by liberalism. And I think we're, we're going to have to rediscover this. I don't see any other option uh, than like this cultural philosophical change. We have to figure out uh, that something has gone wrong and we have to shift. So one of the things that we need to think about, Charlie, is you know, what happens if the U.S. slips into recession, or let's say it's a severe recession, you know, something like 2008 or worse, you know, what's the next step? Are people going to say, well, that didn't work? Are they going to turn to a Bernie Sanders-style socialist model, or are they going to, or is there going to be a shift to, once again, you know, reverting to restart the uh, globalization and liberalism that, that was going going so well up until um, just a few years ago. And I don't know the answer to that, but that's a lot of what I'm doing now with my life is trying to inspire and defend this, this, the old system of of liberty in the name of human rights, prosperity, and peace. Do you think now that, so we've seen Bitcoin um, and crypto assets in general, like, you know, cryptography, but freedom and all these things have such a, um, major role in the world stage to a point where even President Trump, Donald Trump, he he tweeted about Bitcoin. Uh, I guess he sees it as a threat. Um, Can we, and I hope you say yes, can this crypto industry, this crypto world, like help us bring about like you, like you wanted, like you want, and I want this reintroduction of, of, of liberalism and freedom. And well, uh, let me just say that I would, if it weren't for, uh, uh, the crypto world and the crypto sector and Bitcoin in particular, I would be almost to the point of saying that it seems really unlikely that we're going to forestall the rise of nationalism. But fortunately, and that's why I'm so glad for Satoshi and for the whole revolution, we actually have real hope that we have a way to push back against this right now. Whereas we didn't have. I just don't want Bitcoin and crypto to become like a footnote. Like, yeah, it was a great socioeconomic experiment. It ushered into this whole Venmo payment system world. I know exactly what you mean. But I know exactly what you mean. I've been worrying about that in recent days, too. Like, wow, you know, is is Bitcoin come and gone? Was it a thing? And now it's not a thing. It's all, you know, the the demand for 
fast peer-to-peer cheap payments is being absorbed by the big banks. And now there's not going to be a role for crypto anymore. Yeah, no, I have that same fear too. Yeah, I've I've been feeling this way uh, recently. But um, the fact is that everything we've always said about Bitcoin remains true right now. It's a a way for you to really, for every individual, it democratizes access to uh, the media of exchange, yes. you know, and, and, and it's a, it's without a permission layer. Um, it still is peer to peer. It, it is mean complete control over your assets. And there's no tech, other technology that does that. Like Venmo seems cool. Um, Zelle seems you can get frozen out of your Venmo of account. You can get frozen out of your yeah. Zelle account. And I think it, by one person sitting in a yeah, room in the same sense that Facebook can write you. And this happens to a lot of my friends, you know, the, uh, Facebook will just say to them, um, your account's been deleted. It's like, wait, I've been, I have 10 years of my life. Is there? Oh my God. Yep. It's over. Jeff, how can people follow uh, your writings and what you're up to? And you know, you, a lot of people are going to be listening to this and say, Hey, I want to read some of this guy's articles. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Well, um, I write for the American Institute for Economic Research and this thing was founded. I love this place. It's over here in Western Massachusetts. It was founded in 1933. The reason it was founded was to fight against FDR's confiscation of gold. That's really? It. That's the reason it was founded. When when FDR made an announcement that said, all right, got to turn in your gold, E.C. Harwood, who was then teaching at MIT, said, you know, that's not going to work for me. And he started this institute to, to, uh, to research, understand, and promote um, understanding of money, finance, privacy, personal liberty in the world. Well, hey, Jeff, when that, when that happened, when, when FDR said that, were there prevailing minds that were for it? And what would, how was the, how were they rationalizing it? Like what? Well, so here's what was interesting ab- about that. I mean, the answer is basically no. It was a haphazard uh, power grab because it wasn't just they shut the banks. It wasn't just that he demanded everybody turn in the gold. He actually devalued the dollar. And the, the ostensible reason was to, um, to kick the economy, give it a kick forward, but that's not a good way to do it. You know, I mean, it was a very bad idea. There weren't really. There was virtually no economist in the United States that was for it, and and even his closest advisors admitted that the policy was haphazard, made up on the spot, completely point, pointless and useless, and it didn't work. But E.C. Harvard was pretty much alone in setting out, saying, "You know what? I need to do. I need to fight this." with all my might. And two times before World War II, the government actually sent notices to the American Institute for Economic Research shutting us down, saying you cannot speak, you cannot write, you cannot publish. E.C. Harwood basically just threw these notes in the trash and just kept doing it. And, you know, it was really something. It just absolutely defied the government. So I'm just really honored to be here um, because of this this deep uh, history, which of course I wasn't around for, you weren't around for, but still, but this actually happened. You know, there were criminal penalties if you didn't turn in your gold, and people did go to jail. Wow, amazing, Jeff. So that you. is, that, <clears throat> and there you go. Right? I mean, like that's why uh, cryptocurrency, crypto assets, Bitcoin are so Important. wonderful. Yeah, because. Like, I love gold. You love gold. We love the gold standards. Way better system than the fiat money standard. The problem is um, that at any point, and we saw this in history, the government could just issue a proclamation saying, give up your gold. And, and now you've got a real problem. Uh, so every uh, so there is a central point of, point of failure because of the physicality and the non-distributed nature of gold ownership. 
But um, on the blockchain, uh, with a distributed ledger, ledger that keeps careful documentation of your your right to con control your your assets, um, with through a de decentralized um, mechanism, you you're not in danger of that same level of confiscation. Of course, they can harass us; they can do terrible things to us, and you of all people know that. But in the end, they can't tear the whole system down. But they were able to destroy the gold standard. I don't think they'll be able to destroy um, a crypto standard. From your mouth to whatever God you believe, listen, you know, listening <laughs> to ears, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our, our listeners can follow you at Jeffrey A. Tucker on Twitter, and it seems yeah. like that's where you post a lot of your articles, which oh, yeah. is great, and it's that's just spelled exactly the way it sounds. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Charlie, it's on the show. so good to reconnect with you. These are good times, and and I adore you, admire you. Um, I'm just so proud to be a colleague and, and thank you. more prouder to be a friend. I'm, I cannot have said it better myself. Thank you again so much, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you again for listening to such an amazing episode of Untold Stories, and thank you for listening to hear more about my sponsors, including Scott Offord. Scott is a broker of ASIC Mining Gear, and he provides large-scale managed miner hosting services. Basically, he helps you with buying and selling your miners or getting your miners up and hashing. Scott is on the board of directors for the nonprofit organization called Blockchain and Crypto Mining Association, or the BCMA. They provide networking opportunities and ongoing education for professionals and hobby miners alike. Scott and the BCMA will be sponsoring the Mining Disrupt Conference in Miami in July 2020. That actually sounds like something I should go to because I live only a few hours away. It's an event like no other created by miners for miners. I'm not a miner, but maybe I still will go check it out. All the mining equipment manufacturers and solution providers will be exhibiting there like they were last year. The networking opportunities are phenomenal. To learn more about Blockchain and Crypto Mining Association or the Mining Disrupt Conference, contact Scott on Telegram or Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.